Dear guests, the study of international shouldn't pretend to be a science. It couldn't explain the whole complexity of contemporary events through the prism of universal laws, norms, and structures. If anything, the study of international should be an open-ended endeavor in understanding different viewpoints and perspectives. Eventually, this is the way to build uh, a sustainable world through diplomacy and dialogue. Over the year, the way in Ukraine taught me to be attentive, introspective and critical to the study of international relations. I do not rush with conclusions and judgments. I try to observe as much as possible and listen to as many takes on the conflict as it is conceivable. It is ironic that hard sciences tend to be way much more amenable to change and progress than dogmas of social sciences. Since scientists often have humility to know that they don't quite comprehend the object of their study, be it universal laws of nature or the origin of the universe. Similarly, I think no one can truly understand the scope of changes happening in the world right now. This is the idea that I pitched to Dr. David Bozold in our previous conversation that you are about to hear. This conversation marks uh, a tragic anniversary of uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. And uh, in this conversation, we, we together with David share our thoughts and reflections on, on this war. So if you like the podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. And as always, enjoy. So, David, I, I wanted to ask you, I guess, my first question would be, like, does it feel that we live through the most severe crisis in modern world history? Or at least one of the most uh, severe, like, this turning points in history? Did you already answer the question before? Because no, I don't. I, because I think I already responded to it by saying that, of course, the question is, what time period you would actually like to look at? If you think, is it the most severe crisis, at least for the West and Europe, since the end of the Cold War? Certainly. But then again, the question is, um, do other countries also perceive it that way? And there I'm not that sure. Yeah. So if we look at, say, India, Brazil, maybe also China, they certainly see yeah. the war in Ukraine as... Well, certainly a, a challenge to, or, or also, I guess, an international problem where, I mean, a solution needs to be found. And you can see that with regard to the, the Chinese peace plan, um, whatever you make of that in terms of is it that the Chinese really seek peace? Is it, is it just a move to also rhetorically support Russia? I mean, that's 
are something that um, I think depends on your own perspective. But as such, I think that our focus in Europe is certainly one where we see this is the most severe threat to political stability that we've mm. seen since the end of the Cold War, yes. It's also interesting for me that uh, it's been a year and of course it's like our, this podcast is, is, is kind of like anniversary and we discuss like one... A sad, discuss, a sad and tragic anniversary, one has to say. Yeah, of course, but it's also like we, we talk about this war and we talked about this war over the year and what's interesting that it's still like a big crisis but the life goes on, like especially in, in Europe. I think that's because the two of us are not that much affected in the sense. Of course, we are... Yeah. We, ha we have seen a huge influx of here in Berlin, Ukrainian refugees. But of course, if you um, have a family member yeah. on either side of the front, if you have um, otherwise relatives who have either been killed, who had to flee their homes, I think you do have a different perspective on on the war. Yeah. Um, the same could go for, uh, for instance, my my children who have Ukrainian students now in their class, of course, that brings war way closer to you. Yeah. And if you don't want to, or if you, I put, put it differently, if you want to continue living your life as it used to before February 24th, 2022, I think you can more or, more or less comfortably do so if you are middle or upper middle class in Russia or Germany. Yeah. And... Um, in that sense, it may feel awkward to some, and also to observe that some people just, you know, move on or just leave their lives, lead their lives as they used to before. Yeah, that's that's true. But also, do you think your perspective on the war has changed over the year, or whether, like, if you can a little bit introspect, like, uh, has has your perspective changed? My perspective has only changed in so far as. I think much of the debate that we see in the press or in the media or in press statements or in conversations that politicians are having, in speeches that they give, that um, many things still seem to be unclear and I, I sometimes miss a more, say, analytic understanding of the war. Because I think I just mentioned the kind of personal relationships that are involved in the war or the, the kind of personal contacts um, that may shape your perception of the war. Uh, but then there are others such as what are the, the political aims that sort of the Germans should pursue? Um, how do we balance the, the kind of different interests? So, I mean, uh, the, the pretty easy thing is if you just think about uh, this anti-war demonstration that was heavily criticized, it happened last weekend in, in Berlin, if you think about that, so the, the overall aim, according to the organizers, is, um, is the, well, the end of the war. I think that's what more or less everyone mm. uh, would like to see. And then the, the question of, of, is, of course, how can you achieve that goal? Um, the criticism that is often leveled at those people is they are naive, they uh, try to appease Putin, um, and others say they don't want Putin to get away with simply invading a country, um, taking something like a fifth or a, a quarter of the entire Ukrainian uh, territory, and then uh, basically life goes on, or there's a ceasefire, and, um, and otherwise you have something like a 
rump Ukraine or a, or a sort of significantly territorially reduced Ukraine and a larger Russia. Now, um, as such, I think that perspective is, is, is perfectly legitimate. That's not what, I mean, we would like to have because, I mean, as such, and there should be the principle that we've already find in the uh, UN Charter and that the territorial sovereignty should be um, protected of, of each state, that, I mean, uh, the more powerful state shouldn't be able to simply invade another country and then simply add that to one's territory. Um, but, of course, things are, are then also difficult in, in the sense of what time horizon are we talking about. I think what we didn't expect last year, or maybe we did, is that um, the war will most likely drag on for um, rather a long time because no side is really backing down. So um, yeah. I was surprised to hear some commentators say that we should expect um, this year to be oh, yeah. the one where the war ends, and I don't see that. They will say it every year until maybe bigger war. I mean, uh, actually, I, I, I said it in our first episode about the war that it, it would be... It would be like a prolonged conflict and definitely conflict that, I mean, I, I'm way much more comfortable in seeing this conflict as a, like a broader uh, conflict between West versus Russia or versus like Russia plus China or whatever, like who wants to join this type of entity or block, so to speak. Uh, that's why I think it's, it's, uh, it's a very, it's the conflict that, that uh, is destined to, to last for a while. And also I thought, like, for, for me, I had, like, this idea, of course, uh, and maybe drawing some analogies, because in my free time, I love, uh, I love reading on physics, and I love, uh, like, reading on cosmology, on universe. And, you know, when, like, physicists saying that we're studying, like, a cosmos is something, like, you know, that you couldn't really understand. I mean, you could try to, like, you know, try to calculate it, but, like, try to have, like, these formulas. But in the end, it's just, like, you're so small, and, like, the universe is so big, and... and I actually want to even draw this analogy to whatever process is happening in the international system. It's the same thing. Again, it's something... Do, do you mean it's a sort of a natural process that we have difficulties understanding? It's like or it's or so... is it something that we feel overwhelmed and yeah. say, oh, we cannot do something about it? Both. In a sense, it's like it's something that we just observers and it's something that we can observe. And um, it's like it's, it's such a big process, I guess, historically, that really changes the whole history, like the whole like trajectory of humanity. So it's like we can really understand it that much. I mean, we can all bring different perspectives and we have, of course, different type of ideas. And I think it's it's important to show and to understand, I guess, as many takes and ideas on this on, on this conflict. But as such, it, it is something like very abstract and something very big and something like I think incomprehensible. Like whenever someone comes and says, you okay, like I know what, what this is all about, it's probably it's probably either wrong or just like the person like you know people tend to again in the west actually especially when the people kind of like clogged up into this like bubble of information and they think they understand the conflict and they they completely kind of shut them from any other perspectives like you know this is like where you have problems so it's because you're not really open minded and for me it's like you know it's it's actually like drawing like the, the, the like drawing analogy between like almost like cosmology and the study of international in the sense that it like the process that is happening is is that big i think it's like that incomprehensible but you mean it's 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 complex that makes it difficult to understand but yeah. at the same time that of course leads to the question 
who actually has agency and does agency yeah. play a role in the sense of, I mean, do politicians then can really take decisions that will alter the change yeah. uh, or the, the course of history? Or yeah. Because, I mean, to me it sounds, if I may be mean, like sort of a, a cheap excuse to say, you know, it's... We cannot really do something about it. And I mean, yeah. there are hundreds of thousands of people getting killed. There are uh, hundreds of thousands of homes getting destroyed. Um, and um, it's just like, you you know, you shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's a pity. Yeah. But I mean, as such, there must be some kind of uh, solution. And of course, the, the cynical take that some take is, unfortunately, it's not terribly unrealistic, is that... <clears throat> um, such wars end when um, both sides or one side are physically so exhausted yeah. that uh, they just cannot continue to fight. <clears throat> I mean, you have a lot of yeah. conflict resolution uh, literature that suggests just that, or negotiation literature, yeah. uh, and that's that's often then called the hurting stalemate, um, if it's more mm. or less that both sides are, are physically exhausted. But I, I think that could take... Um, still quite a long time so um and i think yeah. what, what you just mentioned about this cosmology thing maybe we can talk about uh, the kind of different uh, analytic levels because i mean i mm -hmm. we, we started off by basically exchanging our views on how we are personally affected or we should rather say not that much yeah. affected by the ukraine well, of course we have been observing it now for for the last year but if we look for Uh, solutions or if we look five, 10, 20 years down the yeah. road, what do we expect to see yeah. in terms of the international system? Because, yeah, I mean, I think uh, here I would say again, like, uh, like using this uh, analogy in the sense that like whatever, like whatever processes uh, are happening now, they will have like ripple effects in like 50 years, 60 years. So that's why I really think this conflict, again, maybe you, you don't like this, um, Oh, I mean, you would disagree, but I, I do think it's something that has, like, you know, uh, implications for the whole, like, system, for, it does have implications for... You mean the whole globe, the whole world? I wouldn't say the globe, but it definitely does have implications for the dynamic of the international system. I don't, I mean, I try not to, I try to kind of, like... I agree with that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, from for the international system, and, of course, um, the end of this conflict like the end of this conflict will kind of determine the whole trajectory of the international system. And of course, here we need to think about uh, China vis-a-vis -vis the US and how this conflict plays out because, I mean, whatever we have now, I think it's something like a prelude to the bigger conflict. And I mean, we kind of see now in terms of rhetoric how rhetoric escalates on both like Chinese and American sides. Again, like people definitely, you could definitely argue that Well, Americans fight a proxy war with Russia in, in, in Ukraine, but people also, you could reverse this logic if, if China gets involved, and I do think it, it gets involved in cer at a certain point, because it's in, in Chinese interest to have this war, uh, the same way is it in American interest to have this kind of like prolonged conflict. Uh, in a sense, what do you mean by that? I mean that. I, I mean. I mean. I mean. It's in, it's, I mean. You, can, that, you mean that that there is a that. The Chinese side sees it as a way that if they they can more easily dictate the relationship, the bilateral relationship with with Russia, because yeah. as such Russia gets weaker if it is sort of an ally of the Chinese, and otherwise it is also no, exhausts the 
yeah. the, the sort of West in, in mean, a way? Think, or what's, what's the kind of take you have on that? Chinese proximity in the sense of Taiwan. Whatever deliveries they had for Taiwan, they're all delayed because of Ukraine. It's like if China thinks about invading Taiwan, it's in their best interest to, to keep the fire in Ukraine because it drags American military infrastructure to Ukraine. I mean, this is already what, you know, people back in the day thought about, oh, what about like having like, you know, how, how would American military actually perform on both like fighting two wars at the same time? And of course, I do think at certain point we will see like just basically China-Russia military alliance and just like declaring to the world that we are well, now... Well, you could technically say that has been existing for all. Yeah, but it's years not now because the, yeah. of course they are both members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and some people said that the SCO is already something like yeah. an East Asian or Asian NATO, um, and of course we'll see but what, what happens there. I, my, yeah. my personal take is um, that what we will see is um, first of all what we are not seeing is what some Americans thought might happen, and that is a rapprochement between the EU or Europe, maybe excluding the UK and Russia. And of course, now after last year and after 2014, that sounds naive anyway. But I mean, if we just go back to the debates after the Cold War, the late 1990s, the early 2000s, we, we saw this idea that uh, th there were so many books about uh, the growing power of Europe, both economically, maybe also militarily, There was uh, the, the Saint-Malo declaration back then between uh, the UK and France. Uh, we then had uh, Madeleine Albright saying that there were the three Ds, right? Mm. So no decoupling, no duplication, no discrimination against um, any NATO member or, I mean, no European efforts uh, to build up something like a security, not only architecture, but also um, like a, a military mm -hmm. power um, that is not part of NATO. And I think uh, a lot of the, the things we are seeing now are due to sort of a meandering of, of American positions. I mean, um, I think we see a pretty much stable pattern in, in Russia, uh, if we like it or not, and we uh, can all disagree that it's or we can all say that it's it's uh, you know not going in the di right direction it's it's a kind of way to push for a multipolar world that um, we wouldn't necessarily need to have but as such um, one has to um, concede that um, Putin and Medvedev's uh, takes or positions have not changed that much whereas I mean if you if you just look from From Clinton to George W. Bush to Obama uh, to Trump, there have been many different uh, <clears throat> sort yeah. of uh, changes forth. with regard to what is the purpose of NATO, how do we position ourselves vis-a-vis um, -vis the European partners. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there we are, we are seeing a problem. So, yeah, um, yeah. now I, I thought I had too many trains of thought. Uh, so you may have to disentangle them again. Yeah, I think the one thing you said, I mean, it's actually interesting because uh, some people, like some Western analysts, especially based in Europe, they often argue, you know, oh, Germany has to get way much more involved and France has to get much more involved in NATO. That was and before 2014. No, I mean, but even now they say like, well, if, if the, but w w what I would argue, you know, if you, if you leave, 
like the US out of European security equation, I mean, you actually need to have like, oh, something like, of course, the increase of commitment of Germans and French, but this increase of commitment should come hand in hand with the kind of like good relationship with Russians. In other words, like, like Americans... In um, the long term, yes, but, but I also, mean, the short term won't happen. But also if you, if you think about just pre-war uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict dynamic, if you take Americans out of equations, like of, of this like particular equation, and, you know, you go to Berlin or you go to Paris, they couldn't guarantee what Americans did to Ukrainians, at least like this kind of like um, ambiguous support. They, because they, for them, the purpose was to build relationship with, with Russia. And it means like, yeah, like saying no to NATO in Ukraine or something like this. Well, there was... I mean, Dimitri, I, th yeah. I, think, I, I think you're right with saying yeah. no to NATO, but I think the, the kind of question is, why is that? And I think... Um, Like yeah, if, you, if imagine you're you're Ukrainian, I I think you're you would certainly be more positive towards the position of of the U.S. or Poland these days because I mean they are at least the two countries that take the idea of security guarantee yeah. seriously. So I mean, of course, everything that the French and the Germans did with the Minsk format and all that, um, you know, technically froze the conflict in a way. Yeah. Um, but it was also based on the assumption, um the implicit assumption that the French and the German military couldn't give any, or that the two countries couldn't give any real security guarantees to Ukraine. Yeah. Because, I mean, uh, simply the military power isn't there. And then the question is, yeah. was that because the French and the Germans didn't want to? Um, yeah. Maybe yes. Also because, of course, uh, building up such a military costs a lot of money. Um, but I think it's also because of the American position that was incoherent over the years. Because, I mean, every time that the Europeans try to, you know, get their act together, try to build up a military structure that would allow them to somehow, you know, contribute to a security architecture, be it European or global, uh, the Americans intervened in a way. And you can see that, I mean, the, yeah, one yeah, of I the mean, lessons from the Balkan Wars was that after Clinton... Most Americans said, hey, Europeans, I mean, we had to come to the rescue of your continent once again. So please, you know, uh, build up or please ensure that you have the necessary capabilities. That happened. Then the war in in Afghanistan was fought. Some also joined, again, the, joined the Iraq operation. But I mean, as such, there is no, it's, I it's, mean, it's real a, European uh, security it, policy there. But it's interesting, uh, the observation you made, and I think it's correct, that you said, well, Americans just want Europeans to behave like Americans. Like, in other words, they want to, to them to fulfill American interests. But they don't, I, I, but they don't I, necessarily I, think, well, maybe Europeans... They, as they, a they're right, they would, would disagree. No, but uh, like, in a sense, well, like, let me just I guess, finish my like, this thinking, but like, in a sense, Americans never think, oh, but Europeans can have their own security interests, and those security interests can be, well, different from... American security interests because that's that's what it means to be an actor to be to be sort of a power. But also, I want to like maybe comment on on Ukrainian agency, and I do think like for example, Ukraine has agency, but because of the American this American involvement in in European security architecture, Ukrainians never considered the fact that well maybe you shouldn't be that belligerent to Russia. I mean, in the end, it's kind of stupid to be belligerent to such a country that neighbors you. But they, they well, the question is, what, what do you mean by belligerent? Because, I mean, uh, of course, yeah. I mean, there was no 
Ukrainian military offensive or no push towards Russian territory. No, they, they need uh, to be. So we, we are talking about how should we look at the period from 2014 to 2022, But look, right? look at the period before that, and that's what you said during one of our conversations. Before 2014, before the coup happened. You, you, had, you said a coup, others call it revolution, right? So I mean, I mean, officially it's the violent change of government. I mean, so it's it's it, it's 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 the end of the Yanukovych regime. Um, I mean, most, I mean, you I know, mean, whatever, the, the, like, the, the, the literature you will see here, you you would call it a coup. Others would call it, um, I mean, the, the Maidan of, revolution. So I mean, I mean, non, um, non, but but you but you already see that. I mean, if you do have those two contradicting narratives, I mean, it's it's, no, but let it's me, difficult. Let me, let, let me finish in the sense that it, it doesn't really relate to Ukrainian internal internal question, but like mainly. Ukrainian external and foreign affairs question because, well, you have this neighbor that, you know, leases your base in Crimea for 100 years. It just signed a contract a couple of years before during Medvedev era, not Putin era, actually. And, well, I mean, they're not going anywhere from this military base. You need to understand, if you want to save Crimea, I mean, you have to build good relationship with Russia. I mean, I mean for example, for me, the question of NATO is a little bit schizophrenic. I mean, what you want for Ukraine is definitely have like EU membership, you want economic development, but you don't want to bring this geopolitics into question because geopolitics, that what, it's a red flag for Russians because, of course, they, they would never see NATO as a, as a benign alliance. I mean, for them, it's, a, it's, it's their enemy. So, and like Ukrainian agency in this type of, you know, dynamic could be, well, how, how could we ensure that, you know, Russians not going against us And how could we ensure that we, you know, we, we just build a sustainable, developed country here? And the only way to do it, like, of course, would be to, even now, if you think from like 20 years down the road, their real commitment should be, let's, 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 make, let's make Ukraine part of Europe, of EU, and let's say no to NATO, because... There's not no good because Russia is not going anywhere. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, but the U.S. like you know, U.S. can 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 say you know its commitment again. It, it goes back and forth. Like you know, it, you know, like one day it is committed to Ukraine, another day it's not. I mean, like the proximity here matters because I mean, why did Ukrainian nationalists think that they could you know they could just say fuck you to Russians and Russians would what just go and just like give them their military base to NATO? I mean, you know, it's like this is like a politics here, like you know, in the sense. Well, I, I, th I think now we ha now we have so many things to dissect <laughs> and put on the table. Sure, let's... Starting from, how do we call the the change in government in 2014? How do we perceive of of Ukrainian national interests? I'm I'm sure where uh, we both can agree on is that um, it is difficult for Ukrainians to navigate the current situation because um, in order to ensure that they can fight the Russians, they rely on uh, Western support. They cannot, yeah. they cannot fight for themselves or they don't have the possibility um, uh, to ensure that they, they have the arms uh, they But, need in order to fight the war. That's something yeah. that Russia can do. Then the other thing that <clears throat> you mentioned is somehow they have to come up with a strategy how to behave uh, towards Russia, how to navigate that bilateral relationship and um, i think there you see more or less anywhere in the in the in the former soviet union republics bar the baltic states because they have been 
now mm -hmm. independent for such a long time. I think that they're sort of out of the question here. Um, how do you, I mean, balance uh, a rapprochement to the West, be it to the European Union or yeah. to NATO, and relationships uh, with Russia? And do you offend the Russians or, I mean, yeah. how, how, how do you arrange that? So I think um, it, it may sound ironic, stupid, cynical, whatever, but I mean, from what you said, I think the only way you imagine uh, that could have worked out without seeing mm -hmm. the war as a result would have been to actually... Um, change the, the kind of order because if you look at recent history in Europe, it was always that the states first joined NATO and then joined the European Union and you think it could be the other way around so that you would have yeah. <clears throat> so that you would have the mm. uh, the Ukrainians joining the EU first mm. <clears throat> and then maybe or not uh, joining I NATO, but I, 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 is, uh, is is what you what you basically mean is that well, NATO the, membership is yeah. a red flag for Russia, um, and irrespective of whether we think that it feels encircled, that it is encircled, whatever. I mean, we have read those just I mean this, these debates for for <laughs> ages now, um, but I mean, but, I mean as, as, as such, would would you say that there was some kind of miscalculation on on the on the side of Kiev because? Yeah, that, that's, that's no, I something mean, I I, again, I, you, I had you I had the impression you were um, yeah yeah but I, to. again if you, if you just take Americans out of equation even military support it's not like the West can support Ukraine apart with Americans it's it's, it's mainly they mainly rely right now on American support because who else going to give them one hundred billion dollars I mean that's the whole Russian military budget um, again if you just take Americans out of this equation. Then you have completely different dynamic. This again, uh, of course, but I mean that comes the questions to agency, like you know, in a sense. And then, and, and this dynamic means that Ukrainians also would have to adjust to behaving differently vis-a-vis -vis Europeans, vis-a-vis -vis Russians. But once you bring American perspective, because American perspective is like you know, like actually also a little bit cruel because they use Ukraine as a proxy. I mean, it's not that they are very interested in in building a sustainable Ukraine. For them, it's you know, it's it's like kind of like a chip in the game against Russians. Well, I mean, it's... <clears throat> I think that's that's difficult to... I mean, yeah, I mean, again, you would have to look at what are the discussions that are currently happening between Biden, Blinken, uh, Burns, all, all those but, folks who, who, are, who are taking the decisions. Yeah, I, I think as such, you're completely yeah, yeah. right that uh, <laughs> without American support, um, the... The entire conflict yeah, yeah. landscape would look different. Also, of course, Ukraine would be uh, much weaker. I, th I think where the, the big question is, what is the, the driving force? What is the motivations for the Americans? And I think you would say it's a geopolitical, uh, you know, reshaping of, of the order. It's, it's a way to um, transform the trend towards multipolarity uh, that it actually benefits the Americans. Um, also, maybe with a sort of cynical twist that i mean they could mm -hmm. they could simply stop ukrainian support any minute and of course the risk is there if you look to the debates that the republican candidates are having there are not only mm -hmm. trump but others as well saying well i mean why do we actively support uh, uh, a country that is so far away from american shores we should refocus but, our yeah. efforts towards china and that's of course a debate that is ongoing so if you are 
um, yeah. a policymaker in uh, in the, in Ukraine. Um, I think um, the 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 interest must be for them to ensure that if no longer American weapons start flowing into Ukraine, they will need additional supplies from from the European side. And I think that's exactly uh, what we're I, seeing yeah, with the leopard tanks is, and with the French. But um, this is this is like a divergence in our perspective, very interesting one in the sense of because I I think if you want to have Europe more involved in this question and you want to have Americans kind of out of this question, you have completely different Europe. I mean, Europe in a sense that could not really do what America is doing because I mean, Europe is not that much. We wouldn't be that much powerful militarily, but instead they could they could approach Russians diplomatically and say, hey. Like let's let's just like forget this NATO question. Like what 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 could we do in terms of negotiations without NATO question? Could we ensure like could we sign a peace deal? Maybe like bring Chinese into question. Like keep like Americans out of this of this negotiations. Could we? I think that won't happen. Some, at least without the without the tacit approval of the American side. There may yeah, be some I, kind I, of. Uh, but maybe, maybe who knows? But this is like where there is an agency to Europeans come in and say. I mean, at least like if you if you look at this debate about Europeans, like what does sovereignty mean? In the end, sovereignty means that you do something that is in your European interest. And European interest is not like first like European interest should be not to make it European war. And right now. Like the odds, like, you know, it's kind of like they're not good for Europeans. In a sense, again, that's what I like this analogy, but if you think about the US, US is as a as a big like fat dude living in a mansion. And it's like it looks into like, you know, whatever feels like, you know, Europe like it's like a it's a it's a, Europe is just a block of flats. You need to ensure that all European nations live in kind of like in, in certain in certain uh, sustainable, sustainable way that allows them because there are many, of course, national questions in Europe, and the only way is to build through, of course, like in the long run, I think like European Union does, it's to build it through trade, to build through open borders, like exchange, cultural exchange, all those good stuff that like European Union already did. But of course, you need to bring both like Ukraine and Russia into question. But here, you know, comes this like dude that lives in the mansion, and that things like you know, the, the the dude knows how to organize this block of flats. But you know, I mean, what I mean in 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 a sense, if you if you if bring like you know, kind of like. But do you mean that I mean that Europeans I mean, yes. are more dependent on Americans than the other way around? Sure, I mean that's I think, <clears throat> I mean, I mean obvious. <laughs> but I mean, <clears throat> you you are you are still looking for a way that. Europeans have or might have a different interest than, than the Americans. I think they they certainly have a different perception um, and that's something you could see. But on the other hand, I think um, I don't see that much what they can um, change at the moment because you have those almost self-fulfilling yeah. prophecies that are being generated by certain narratives. And the narrative that the the Europeans somehow have to deal with, and the Americans is um, the negotiation position for any ceasefire, mm -hmm. for any solution to the conflict, must be that <clears throat> Ukraine is at least in a better position. And that, in the current logic, means military advances or means either, I mean, retaking a certain uh, amount of territory or at least bringing uh, the Russians 
to the defensive. Now, if we yeah. look to the battlefield, it looks different. So it yeah, looks yeah. rather that we see more, more Russian advances. Um, and so far, the solution or the reaction is, well, we just sent more weapons to Ukraine and we are training more Ukrainian soldiers. But yeah, of course, I mean, um, uh... what it, what, so what it in the end means is that, um, of course, more people are being killed. There are um, a, a lot of, you know, local fights over certain yeah. cities. Um, and that will most likely uh, continue. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I think as such, the debate that we're having, at least in Germany, is, is not very... Profound, because what we see is we have on the one hand those people who say um, this violence and this war must stop. There are too many people who are dying, and I think yeah. that's 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 a fair point. But then the question is, how could the war end? And um, it could end by by negotiations. Yeah. But then um, I also see the point that some people say, well, you you cannot expect the Ukrainians. First of all, uh, Europeans and Americans cannot dictate when Ukrainians should negotiate i think that's a, that's a fair point because in in that sense uh, like, yeah, yeah, of, of, of course ukrainian agencies there you cannot yeah you cannot true, say oh you i mean so there is also no but there is also do like as the, we please these the agencies multifarious in the sense like but what would ukrainian do without 100 billion aid package or another one and another one and another one and another one like what would they do then if there is no aid like of course, Ukrainians have of course agency, would behave but they, differently. Could, but, I mean, could, they could, could be incentivized to behave in a certain manner because, I mean, they rely now on, on the aid, so to speak, on, on American, European, European aid. But, yeah, I mean, there are many points to disentangle here, but, like, um, yeah, but I, think I, the easy, I think the easy one that you just alluded to, if we get back, if we step back and disregard the military dimension. We yeah. also have a strong economic dimension. So what yeah. we see in the US is we have um, incredible packages um, of arms that are being sent to uh, Ukraine, also um, other financial aid. We, we're seeing the same um, in, in Europe. And then we're seeing otherwise the economic uh, situation. So uh, America is currently heavily subsidizing sort of the green economy with the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. We see also a lot of disgruntled voices in, in Europe who say, oh, we don't think that's a, a fair way to treat us. Uh, we have problems with market access, so should we do something similar? Um, but as such, I'd say the, the, economic or the economic situation is stable, but at least shaky in the sense that we have high inflation, both in the US and in Europe. Then yeah. we have uh, Ukraine, that must rely on on financial and military uh, supports because otherwise, I mean, it, it is not able to s sustain itself economically as mm -hmm. Russia is. And if we then yeah. look at Russia, um, apparently many experts have been surprised that um, Russia has proven to be more resilient. But also of course, it has seen a, a huge, uh, a huge number of people leaving the country. But yeah. as such, um, so the uh, we, we're seeing a decline in in. Economics uh, in economic figures, but I mean, as such, uh, it it is not that dangerous to the overall system. I think so. I mean, they could divert energy exports; otherwise, um, the ruble is comparatively yeah. uh, stable. So, if you just look at that pattern, we mm -hmm. see uh, the picture is not as rosy in Europe and in 
the state <laughs> as, as some people like to pretend. <laughs> um, it is actually surprisingly stable in Russia and it is, is certainly terrible yeah. in, in Ukraine because uh, Ukraine wouldn't be able to sustain itself without economic yeah, and military support. Like from, but, from, but where do we go from here? What, what does that mean? But from, I guess, again, this, there's a complexity here again, like just coming back to the point I made before, like the complexity is, is actually, if you think about it, is incredible. Like you can, you can take so many different perspectives on the issue. You can think from so many different levels. And of course, I mean, if you, what just you said in terms of where is it going for Ukrainians, I think as of now, as I would, I would just see as just an observer, I think it's going really bad because, I mean, if you think about Russian just point of view, what they're doing, they're destroying Ukraine. I mean, of course, they're not, they don't say openly, but they almost imply that the more you support Ukraine, meaning the West, the more we, just, we, we, go, we will take as, as, much as, as many lands as possible and we will destroy the country. We will just destroy the country. And, I mean, their hope is that the Ukraine will collapse at a certain point. I mean, they see it and... Of course, I mean, I don't think the time works for Ukrainian benefit, so to speak, because those are no, not comparable countries. I mean, Russia is self-sufficient. Russia can also get, as we know, Chinese support. Um, and, you know, if the conflict continues with that type of intensity, three, four, five, six, seven years down the road, at a certain point, Russians, like Russia ex like expects Ukraine, I think, to collapse. And then if there is, you know... If there is no body, there is no crime. <laughs> like that's what they they're aiming for now, and and I I think at this point Russians are not interested actually in negotiations because they 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 realize that uh, like the Western perspective on negotiations is actually you know it's not it's not it's not interesting for Russians because they their perspective, but it's also I want to like. Going actually back in our conversation, I'm, 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 like, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. It's just back in our conversation, and actually just just linger on this point that you you made. Uh, just like to maybe add to this point that I think the Western the West has an ease with the topic of negotiations because there is no position on what the West wants, or I would say what the U.S. wants from these negotiations. Because right now, when you hear people from administration, people from just expert community. Like, what do they really want from... I mean, they understand that they couldn't get Russia out of Crimea. They couldn't get out, Russia out of Donbass. Most likely they couldn't, no matter how many what type of new weapons they deliver. Um, so, But that's still the political line. But we, that's a demand. Yeah, yeah. But, like, because, in, of course, in, in, in their, like, you know, again, in their, like, perfect type of scenario the russia is just not there i mean the russia is going somewhere else and like well it, it, i mean that's that's <laughs> it collapses i mean no it, it they they say i mean weaken the um russian yeah. military and otherwise yeah ensuring that <clears throat> um ukraine can retake the territory that the exactly. russians took <clears throat> and that depends on whether it is it is um pre February 24 yeah. uh, 2022 or whether it's actually pre 2014 meaning everything including Crimea yeah. um, but of course as such the i think the the western line as such is there must be a retreat by the the russian forces at least to a considerable degree yeah. in order to ensure that there can be lasting peace negotiations yeah but but also th I, i think again there should be like you know like a, like 
<laughs> and then the complexity of the question is actually mind-boggling because there are so many roads to take in this, in, even just in this conversation, not to say in the world right now, <laughs> so to speak. But, you know, uh, I think, like, for me, the, po the point I want to make is that if Europe wants to get agency and get more involved, it has to think about the arrangement that includes Russia and Ukraine. They, sh they, they could not be an arrangement that excludes Russia because Russia is not going anywhere. Even if Russia loses right now all the lands, just imagine it loses Crimea with Russian population that doesn't want to be Ukrainian. In 10 years, they're going to be new Hitler in Russia. Going to be maybe way much more, way much like harsher and way much hardcore line in Russian politics. Again, in the country with nukes and you just don't want, you just, you just like just for security reasons, you don't want this scenario. And the way to achieve it is, like, the only way to achieve it is, like, to, you know, as I said, like, bring Americans out of this equation and just think about European security architecture without Americans, which, I mean, to me, in a sense, probably should be the end goal of European security architecture. Because, I mean, Americans play their good role, but, like, for now, they, they like, their role is actually destructive, I think, in European security. It's not good. It's, it doesn't do any good to 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 the to the security. Um, so, I mean that they're, they're certainly not bringing <laughs> bringing a new European your security architecture into being. I would yeah. grant you that. But I think I would like to address two points. The first is I think um, the only way I see either Europeans or Europeans and Americans actually being able to increase the chances of. Russian negotiations or of the willingness of Russians to negotiate, that's the way I should put it, yeah. is by um, either making it for Russians more costly to continue the war um, or to make them aware of the negative consequences. And um, maybe the two things are identical. What, what do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. I think that um, what becomes pretty evident also for the Russian intelligentsia and the Russian foreign policy elite is that um, at the moment um, Russia is becoming ever more dependent on uh, the relationship with China. And um, both, mm -hmm. also, I mean, because economically speaking, it is opening up to um, the Chinese. Um, and I think as such, the Chinese are gaining more from that relationship than Russians are gaining. So in that sense, they are becoming almost like a, like not a puppet maybe, but I mean like a junior partner mm -hmm. maybe in that relationship. Yeah. So um, I think what we're seeing is that um, those different jigsaw pieces mm -hmm. um, will eventually lead to uh, some kind of new multipolar or whatever kind of, uh, at least not bipolar world order um, and I think there we are back to the question we started with like how does the world look like in 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 mm -hmm. years and um, I think something that we didn't discuss is that's the second point so I, I think increasing um, the awareness that the Russians um, can be at least incentivized to negotiate to back down partly uh, to maybe also have some secret negotiations uh, would be by um, also trying to, you know, create a rift between Moscow and Beijing. So, I mean, I think in, in that sense, we are seeing some of the, the strategic moves, I think, in, yeah. in Europe and, and America. I think what it will all depend on is, um, is on um, what used to be the, 
in Germany it's called in German it's called Blockfreie Staaten. You know, it's a block. It's a G G seventy seven, the non aligned movement mm. uh, countries. I mean, uh, that that was of course um, a group that was less important during Cold War times, but I think can now become more important. So we're talking about mm. countries like. South Africa, about uh, Brazil, about India. And what mm -hmm. we have been seeing over mm -hmm. the last year is be it with regard to General Assembly votes, be it with regard to um, uh, politicians hopping mm -hmm. on a plane and trying to, um, you know, sign a memorandum of understanding for, you know, economic cooperation or trying to uh, convince a person like Lula or mm -hmm. a person like Ramaphosa to... Um, say something about and position the country vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the Ukraine war, that all hasn't really worked out well, or at least not in, in the Western mm -hmm. favor. So, I mean, I would see we at times see tacit support for Russia, like in mm -hmm. China, and we also see at least yeah. pretty much equidistance from Modi and India and from Lula and Brazil, yeah. who say, you know, I mean, that's a European problem. And I think there was a, an, an interesting quote by the, by the um, Indian foreign minister, who I think is revealing, I, I'm not sure whether I, I can fully um, recap it here, but I mean, the, the, the logic was, I mean, the, the West and the Europeans shouldn't, uh, should stop um, perceiving or sh should stop thinking that uh, the world sees a European problem yeah. as a global problem, something along those lines. So I'm, I I misquoted him, but I mean, yeah. the, the overall thrust of the argument was that um, as such, he and other countries, I mean, India and other countries, uh, see the Ukraine war as um, technically a European problem. Yeah. And, and one where um, also perspectives are different around the globe. Um, yeah. And I mean, as such, That's, they uh, should have, I mean, the West, European uh, countries, Canada, the US, they should um, also at least try to take into consideration yeah. that countries like India and Brazil think differently about the world. And I think that's where we're looking mm -hmm. to. So, I mean, it's, it's now trying, Russia and China basically trying to um, build up alliances with those states. Um, and the same goes for the West. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I think the, the nature actually, of, the, of the international system will, I mean, depend on whether we see some kind of new non-aligned movement, I think. And it's maybe it's, say, it's, the, it's the bricks without the R, right? So it's the it's the I mean, in a way. I'm not sure about or BIS. This, I'm not sure about this type of alliance, but I think if you see Russia and China making a real strategic alliance, like in other words, they're going to control the heartland, so to say, that I think would change the whole dynamic of, of the geopolitical historical game. Because now again. It's not that far off to think about like in 10 years when China invades, invades like, I don't know, like Taiwan and, and Russia invades politics at the same time, being in an alliance, so to speak. And it sounds a little bit too far away from now on. But if you think about from Chinese perspective, well, China is also not going anywhere. China is increasing its military. It's, uh, it's becoming assertive. It also looks at what Russia achieved already with its, you know, limited capabilities. And of course, it, 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 it makes, I'm pretty sure it sends all the signals to Americans. You either back down or you're not. And, but we don't care, to be honest. Like, we will achieve our goals. As, as Putin said before, before the war in Ukraine, like Russian, Russian uh, he, he had like this uh, quote that Russian demands are non-negotiable. 
in the sense of like we would achieve those like no 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 NATO in Ukraine either peacefully or not peacefully. That's what Chinese also saying, and Americans saying what they said in, in the same way. But like for me, like what 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 strikes me the most, like if you look at American uh, position, and you already said this during our conversation, it's not it's not really clear what what is the American position. Do they really want to bring Ukraine into NATO? Well, well they, the, the, they have to. There is an American position, and that is, you know, preserving the unipolar moment to yeah. the best possible extent, or at least, I mean, ensuring um, American hegemony, certainly. And the question is, how is that related to any kind of international order? But and like, I think there the, we talk about is perceptions, because I think the Americans still think, maybe naively, that. Um, the so-called international legal order or the international order that they built after the Second World War is to the benefit of everyone. Maybe they benefit a little bit more, I mean, the Americans. But but I, I think what they really don't get or what most policymakers in, uh, in Washington don't get is that this is a position that is not shared in Moscow, in Beijing, and most likely also not in Delhi and in yeah. Brasilia. And I think that's that's the core of the problem. I would say would, I, yeah. I I personally don't buy into a, a lot of sort of the the Western critique, uh, sort of the critique of the West in in those countries that it is just, you know just a hollow thing and it's it's cherry picking and the Americans saying oh this is the legal world order and it's it's uh, you are supposed to behave in that way and we can do whatever we like. I think that's partly correct with regard to the early 2000s with the sort of incredible Bush administration hubris of the Iraq war. I think um, all American administrations ever since have backtracked on that um, path and also have seen that it has terrible yeah. consequences. <laughs> But um, it, still the perception is there by, by many countries, you know, that it's, it's, there are rules for everyone except for the US. And this kind of perception Actually, hasn't gone away. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm maybe since like my conversation with Professor uh, Viola, I'm into like mental exercises, and I actually ask myself like, but, but if you can imagine like the world where there is no strong Russia or no strong China, like you know, like probably like let's say China is like two percent of GDP and Russia is like I don't know one point point five zero zero point five. Make it five percent each, and, and you go back into like zeros or to, like early 2010s. And you could imagine, like, okay, that's what actually we discussed, like, in, in the class uh, geopolitics of NATO. Well, for one, like, probably the U.S. definitely would invade Syria. Probably the U.S. would invade, actually, in Ukraine at a certain point. Why not? Like, in the sense that like, you could see if there was no thing stopping Americans from invading other countries, they would just keep on doing this in very good faith. But I think, I mean, I, I think there is, there is really a flaw to your argument here, Dimitri. And that, they, and, they and, and, and that is, if, in, if you, call, if you Syria. call it, if you call it invasion, I'm fine. And if you look at Iraq, but I think the, the real difference is, and I think we've discussed this before, is that um, the Americans, um, I mean, they, they invade a country, but I mean, and, and they may want to instill, install a, a kind of puppet regime or a regime that is loyal to them. Um, I mean, that's the sort of cynical take. You can also take everything at face value that they say they want to build a democracy um, in the Middle East. But I mean, even if you don't buy into that argument, you at least have to concede, be it Syria, be it Iraq, be it any other country, that, um, you know, they are not intending to make this American territory. 
you know i mean and i think that i think i think that's the difference the yuri yes but it's also it's so it's ten thousand kilometers away from their own territory why would they need this piece of land but in terms of if you if you look at like iraq and military bases in iraq it's like almost like in every big city you have a military american base like i mean you had you still have in Iraq, yes. In Afghanistan, not anymore. But I mean, in, in, and then in, somehow in, in, in Iraq, you have you have <laughs> a, you have mine American presence, and I mean, they they really know that they didn't have a, a lot of knowledge yeah. about the region and and the country because I mean, what um, I mean, apparently I mean, some I mean, Americans were surprised that they saw that Iran actually was now um, more more influential in in Iraq after say yeah, 2005 and I mean that came as a surprise to, to many Americans where I mean most experts of the Middle East would go oh my gosh I mean how stupid can you be because I mean the, that was a result that I uh, mean could be expected but it also maybe the, the, I mean what, what I try to say maybe they just they're as they're that much richer than anyone else that they I mean they just like do whatever they want they don't even need this territory but they could buy the whole Iraq I mean just make it I clear mean, I mean that that you have and, and, that, and that you have a, yeah you have a, you have a strong mm-hmm. presence and also military presence in, yeah. in places like Diego Garcia all, and and those those small islands where there is a military base yeah uh, sure but I mean um, continuing your thought experiment of um, Russia and China each accounting for not more than two or three or whatever percent if, of, if, of of global yeah. GDP <laughs> um, I think you would still see a phenomenon that we've seen. Uh, over the course of history, and that is uh, imperial overstretch. And I mean, that is something that has been discussed. It it was discussed by Paul Kennedy already um, at the end of the 80s. It was then again discussed by by people like Kupchan, who... um, (laughs) who talked about that who talked about the decline <laughs> of american power and in in that sense we are seeing a decline of american power and maybe that is a kind of mental hubris that we see on behalf of the biden administration uh, on behalf of some europeans that they think that um, america and europe are more powerful than they actually are yeah. or that they appear to be more powerful i think it's something we can only judge in 5 to 10 years time and i mean um i think what is crucial is, I think, how the relationship between Europe and China will develop. Because in that sense, that, yeah. is, that is what changes the, um, the overall dynamic. And um, if you read interviews of, American, uh, sorry, of German CEOs and, mm-hmm. and, and business people, um, what they are currently doing, because they have been criticized for their heavy exposure to the Chinese mm-hmm. market... And what what they are apparently doing is trying to isolate um, their companies, their respective companies' um, business in China from that of of Europe. So in terms of supply chains, they are trying to make those things separate and Mm -hmm. and sort of trying to isolate um, everything in China. So producing in China with Chinese people, but not shipping things back and forth so that they don't have repercussions um, on their European or American um, markets and, and businesses. And I think, yeah, it, it, it will be interesting to see. I mean, if if there was to be um, an invasion of Taiwan and then a similar mm-hmm. reaction, uh, namely sanctions, I mean, of course, the effects would be incredible I mean, and in- incredibly um, stronger or, or more powerful than than the ones we see now. Of course, the 
exposure of the German economy to Russia was higher than with other European countries and especially the dependency on oil and gas, of course. But if you look at uh, the German economy and the Chinese market, that's just a different kind of Which um, is magnitude. Interesting to me, again, because you have Russia, you have just here, China, you have there. And how come you have way much more? It's actually what... You well, know, it's, it's the market. I mean, it's, you have more than 1.23 billion have, people. You have 100 and yeah, how many... Yeah, you can also have factories. In, in, I mean, in the end, it's also there is some political decision. Well, let's outsource factories to China because, of course, it's, it's also business. But what I'm trying to say that, like, analyzing how the West behaves vis-a-vis -vis Russia... I, I definitely have this feeling that it was it, it it didn't really want to build Russia. It didn't want to see Russia as a strong economic competitor. In other words, it didn't. Oh, I I, I would disagree. I mean, I, again, I, I'm neither a China yeah. nor Russia expert, but I mean, from the the things I learned uh, back in the days from you know things that the Ostausschuss der Deutschen Wirtschaft, that sort of the the lobby institution of um, but they, of, of German is, industry did. The yeah. ideas that uh, we had with Petersburger Dialog, right, this, this bilateral dialogue also of civil society between Putin that was also continuing under, um, under Merkel and was started under uh, the Schröder government. And we had the so-called Modernisierungspartnerschaft, mm -hmm. the Modern Modernization Partnership. I think um, now Americans often criticize the Germans that this was stupid, naive, or yeah. at least... Um, more beneficial to the Russians than the Germans. That's yeah. something we can debate, but as such that there was at least a willingness by um, European, uh, sorry, by German um, industry or by, by German companies to actually invest in the, in the Russian market. I think that was there. But I mean, what I often heard from, uh, from those people is that they said um, there, are, there are two problems. One is that uh, the Russians really don't want to invest in a diversified economy. They rely mm. too much on the kind of export of hydrocarbons. Um, and, and otherwise, they, they also said that the market as such is way smaller than uh, the one in China. And also they are getting better market access to, to China. Mm. Um, whether that's correct, I don't know, because I'm not um, an economic uh, leader or not a, not a CEO of a company. But that's at least what, what I heard in the conversations back then. Yeah, I mean, if we, I guess, yeah, we can maybe uh, spend some some last minutes of our conversation trying to understand the future of international order. And um, yeah, to me, as I said, I mean, like, I think the processes that are happening, they're really, like, they're very colossal. And I think we actually tend to, I mean, people, especially in the West, and I mean, I, I also maybe, you know, put myself into this same basket we tend to disregard this. Like, you know, we tend to really, and, you know, from, from how people talk about this in, like, very certain terms and, like, you know, people know, or people know, like, well, what's the main argument, who is right or who is wrong. And what they miss is really is, like, the, thi the things that are happening, I think they're incredibly complex and in incredibly big. So if, if, I, if I were to think about, like, you know, international system, 10, 20 years down the road. I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic, but of course it will depend on how confrontation between Russians, Americans and Russia, and Americans and Chinese, this kind of triangle 
or will eventually end. In, in, in other words, so this is, I think, is the main confrontational dynamic because neither Russia nor China, you know, uh, would step back. I mean, they, they make it clear. Those are like, you know, you, know, you can say brightest of their red lines. Like, you know, China, Taiwan is like Chinese territory. Ukraine is not a part of NATO. That's, it's not negotiable things for them. I mean, they, they, they made it clear that they would make the utmost effort to achieve their objectives. And of course, I mean, the whole international system hinges on this like, confrontation. It's in other words, but like to, to make things, you I mean, hinges on in meaning shaping it. Yeah, I mean, and how how it plays out because, of course, there are all a lot of open questions. I mean, you can, I mean, again, you can go in so many different directions because you know, things are not very that great in the United States as well. If you think about the cycle of elections in the U.S., there is all. I mean, it just it's for, for for countries like China, of course, that are complete uh, autocracies, complete dictatorships and stuff like this, for them, it makes sense just to wait. It just makes sense to wait through one election cycle to another election cycle because there are some internal problems in the U.S., as we, of course, all know in John F. Kennedy Institute, polarization, you know, some prob- problems with democracy. And also, like, just, uh, I guess, uh, especially when you read about the U.S., it's just the, the atmosphere in the United States itself is a little bit, you know, yeah. off. Yeah, same. Something bad is like it doesn't feel like it's a, it's 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 good anymore as it used to be. So I mean, of course. So this is like I think how the situation plays out. But I think actually the role of Europe and when you said about people who openly, I mean, and I think the role of Europeans should be rethought. So the role of Europeans shouldn't be we should fulfill American needs or fulfill American interests for the Americans themselves. I mean, they could do them themselves. If well, they I'm not sure to. whether that's what America, uh, sorry, I mean, what, what the, Europeans uh, think. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's sort of a, a critique that is often leveled. But I, I, unfortunately, I mean, again, and also I think it has to do, if you think about material perspective, there is like the city is Brussels and, you know, there is no surprise that the same people who work in NATO work in European Union. I mean, this is the same type of transatlantic. Uh, logic. What do you mean, work in the same city? I mean, it's it 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 ends up like same bunch of people. Like, I mean, no, quite. Well, I, uh, I, I mean, uh, there, there I would strongly disagree. I mean, I would because I mean, this is there is a you know maybe you have to you know. <laughs> but I mean, no, no, but those are people that are like come from very different backgrounds, and I mean. I mean, I would call them like transatlantic elites, like people who are like, I mean. But you will find the harshest. I mean, cri- I mean, critics of of NATO in Brussels, for instance, in the European Commission. I mean, I mean, I haven't heard those voices. Maybe, <laughs> I mean, at least, I mean, I don't follow. I mean, I follow European politics from time to time, but to me, it seems now it's like they play in like in unison. Like there is no big difference between Brussels and. Uh, well, I mean, they they are, they are I mean, better aligned are... than ever. The two policies, I'm I'm sure. Yes. But as you as you suggested, of course, like questions as like you know American Green Act and something like this, and the European Union just, just simply it, it can't do anything because I mean it 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 realizes that you know it's like this minor again. Well, hold... it, it it does the same it does the same thing. But I I think yeah. that the point I wanted to make with regard to the economy is that, um, I think most of the coverage now on the Ukraine war is primarily a military one and I think a, a number mm. of aspects get lost um, mm, yeah. and uh, one thing is generally the economic situation 
um, the possibility to continue the war um, for X number of years and um, also the effects the war will have on the respective economies. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and unsurprisingly, I repeat myself, is of course that the Ukrainian situation in that sense or position is the weakest. But um, when it comes to the European um, countries, of course, they, they have uh, different challenges ahead of them. Um, for instance, one is... Um, migration that we haven't talked about in the podcast, but I think that will also um, be a, a political issue. And I'm not talking about um, Ukrainian refugees. I'm, I'm generally talking about, um, about, about migration flows. We also um, are seeing an incredible destabilization of the Saal zone at the moment and mm. also an increasing Russian presence there of the Wagner Group, while we see a retreat of um, especially the French the Germans are considering to leave. So I think um, coming back to that that idea of imperial overstretch and that um, in a hypothetical world where America was still the dominant power and all others were really uh, weak economically, I still think that um, there is a, a certain way of influence you can have to, you know, that maybe trade arrangements are more in your favor, meaning in, in, mm. the, in, the, in, in American uh, or favorable to Americans. But as such, I mean, it, the footprint, if you will, is or would be just too big. So, yeah. um, and that, of course, means that uh, you have only a limited number of resources. And then the question is, how do you um, spend them? And I think there we do have people who think strategically. We do have people who think um, strategically in a global context. And I, I would think that those people are in London. They are in Brussels, they are in Paris, um, but they're certainly not that much or not that plentiful in, in Berlin, meaning German policymakers, because I think they are... Um, but maybe it's not bad. I mean, the, the, the podcast is called Localizing the Globe, in the sense, like, you know, every... There, there is a certain deceit, uh, like when people talk about the global and universal, and something it means universal and something that they know that you know what global means. What they really mean, it means global for people in Paris, in certain offices, in in, in Washington. But maybe that's a bad way of thinking in general. Maybe there there is no such thing as as a global. Like you know, there is some regional arrangements and there's some regional patterns of of of, of interactions so to speak of course there are regional patterns yeah. but i mean the, the thing what i maybe i i, I yeah, phrased yeah. it wrongly what i mean is germans after the second world war have always you know had a global perspective but only mm -hmm. an economic perspective if you look around the globe you will see um, mm -hmm. German products that you can more or less buy yeah. everywhere and I mean German cars for instance so I mean sure. in that sense German policy has been very successful there have been always voices who said also Germany must be involved more militarily or at least be able to um, operate um, out of area or you know outside of Europe mm -hmm. or maybe outside of, of German territory altogether. And that's a discussion we have been having since 1994 when there was the ruling by the German Constitutional Court. Um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting uh, that this is something that the Germans must do, but I mean, at least they should, they should know that um, action or inaction has certain consequences. And sometimes mm -hmm. I think they are still stuck in that mindset of, Hey, anything military, military 
uh, is something we can delegate to NATO or to the Americans, which sometimes can be the mm -hmm. same. And uh, the rest, you know, we just keep continue yeah. being the sort of economic behemoth mm -hmm. and, and trying to be this, this economic superpower. I, I think it's something that no longer works. And it's, um, I think we are seeing, I think this is basically what the, Zeitenwende, as it was called, um, is all about. I hate the term, by the way. But I mean, I, and I think we're seeing something similar in, in Japan. So yeah. we're seeing more investment into the military. Um, yeah. Is that creating more but security the, dilemmas? Yeah. I guess so. But I think that's something we would have to discuss in another podcast. Yeah, but also maybe let me, if, if you allow me to finish by saying, I guess the whole, like the Germany misses this dynamic that if the world becomes multipolar, It doesn't. It doesn't mean that you have to come 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 on in and fulfill American lost hegemony, so to speak. You have to come up with your own type of thinking, with your own type of interests that can be very different from Americans. And I mean, I think it's they can be, be. But then the question is, how do you pursue that? And I think if you have, then if you have more or less different blocks. So I mean, I think if we're talking about the the next twenty, thirty, fifty years of world order, I think there are. Um, some historic analogies that some people, you know, pull out of the head. The question is whether they are very good, because I think the problem of historic analogies is always that they, um, you know, destroy creativity or destroy creative thinking about alternatives. Mm -hmm. So I think I would be very much in favor of some some kind of creative ways to think about uh, different kinds of world orders. But I think what we're seeing at the moment is is that something? Are we will we see something like a new Cold War, meaning a mm -hmm. bifurcated world, which is basically the West against Russia, China, and whoever joins either side, and then a, a group of non-aligned uh, countries. Uh, so that's the new Cold War 2.0 thing. I don't find it very convincing because it would basically mean an economic decoupling because back then it was that really the connections between the two blocks, meaning the Warsaw Pact and and NATO or the West wasn't very, very high, mm -hmm. right? So there was not a lot of physical, economic, whatever, mobility. The The second alternative is often now um, referenced with regard to 1814-15 and, you know, the concept of Europe mm -hmm. kind of idea. But, of course, that, again, is a problem because um, it suggests, again, um, mm -hmm. that the kind of European solution should be a global solution. And I think so in, in that sense, it's incredibly Eurocentric yeah. um, or colonialist in a way in, in, in terms yeah. of thinking because it would, it would suggest this is, kind of you're with us or against us or, or let, let us tell you how the world order should look like. And it would also be, of course, this zones of influence thing, something that yeah. I thought we had already overcome. I mean, on the, on, the, on the one hand, I think it's good because even if you think about global solutions from European perspective, those solutions are not brought to you by, you know, regime change and the most incredible military that Americans, uh, the Americans have. In other words, it should be solutions that, you know, populate minds and there should be solutions that, you know, that argue and that convince you and something like this. So it's like it has to do something. Again, and I, I maybe want to develop in a sense like we are on campus now. And maybe the way to, you know, try to, to, to come up with those ideas is like by opening the discussion. Because I do think in Europe, the discussion in international relations is very dire. I mean, you either have American academia and American perspective. Okay, 
good, let it be there. I mean, it's there for a reason. It has like tradition and history, or like British American tradition. But there might be something. There is a need for other perspective. I mean, there is a need for European perspective. And of course, in terms of international relations, Europe has a good experience in building, you know, this type of institution, this type of community, which you know, in a sense, it can replicate. And then it needs to find. And for Europe, it it is a pressing need to find an arrangement with Russia. Because again, Russia is not going anywhere. It will be there. It will be there in 10 years. It can even lose the war and come back even more aggressive. And you have to deal with this. So in other words, you have to keep this in mind uh, for Europeans while moving forward. And to keep this in mind, consciously understanding that the, the, the security architecture that is built now is American one. It's, it, and, and in the end, it may benefit, benefit Americans, but it may not benefit Europeans. This is like my mind. Maybe not to the same extent, but I mean, but this I, is, I, I agree with yeah. you that we have uh, some basic flaws, be it in American IR or uh, European IR. And which, is, is, which is like, try, tries to copy American. Yeah. <laughs> but, but certainly what is, uh, while we have apparently an incredible amount or variety of theoretical approaches, um, we don't seem to take into consideration um, perceptions from countries uh, beyond mm-hmm. the United States and Europe. And I think a lot of the political confrontations, uh, a lot of the political rivalries in sort of real life are uh, simply because there is not a lot of understanding on on both sides. But still, I would grant that, for instance, um, Iranians or, or Chinese or most likely as well Russian scholars at least know uh, pretty well what kind of the the Western European and or American, which sometimes can be identical, uh, situation or pers- perspective is. And I mean, um, understanding, trying to understand what are the 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 kind of um, perceptions, traditions, or also self perceptions of the the respective countries of their their role of. Um, the global order, I think that's that's crucial. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's still an important task that has to be fulfilled. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree with you. And especially, again, just having humility because what for me, what's different between international relations is the re- relations part. In other words, just having, being, having humility in understanding that the world is extraordinarily complex. It's not a political science, in other words. Like the, 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 whole, the whole term political science implies that it's like, you know, calculable. I mean, science is, you know, predictable and calculable, but it's not science. <laughs> That's exactly the thing. There is no, there is no certain, certainly right or wrong solutions or answers to this whole complex questions. Like that's why there is just, there is importance to be open and critical and this is, I mean, if you even go back to history, there is a, there is a split between like continental and analytical European philosophy or European like Western philosophy, you can say. So in other words, maybe there is a need for international relations to go like separate direction. Maybe it will lead to certain political changes in, in the future. So like, thank you very much. And I hope to uh, develop with you certainly uh, through, through the conversations. Um, those ideas in the future. <laughs> Thank you, Dimitri. See you next time. <laughs>